Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Alexis Krasilovsky was educated at Smith and Yale with an MFA from California Institute of the Arts. Her books include Great Adaptations, Screenwriting and Global Storytelling, and under the pseudonym Alexis Raphael, the novel Sex and the Cyborg Goddess, which won honorable mention at the 2017 First Annual International Writers Awards. Shooting Women Behind the Camera Around the World, co-authored by Harriet Margolis, Alexis Krasilovsky, and Julia Stein. Alexis is also the author of Women Behind the Camera, Conversations with Camera Women. Alexis directed the global documentary feature Women Behind the Camera, which won four Best Documentary Awards, a second global documentary, Let Them Eat Cake, in 2014, about the pleasures and perils of pastries, won Best Documentary Feature at the Paris Independent Film Festival, and both are available on Amazon Video Prime. She lives in Los Angeles, where she is a professor of screenwriting and media theory and criticism at California State University, Northridge, and is a member of the Writers Guild of America West. Carol, I understand Alexis won your Roy Dean film grant for her film Women Behind the Camera. Yes, she did, Claire, and we're so proud of the film. It's magnificent. Uh, and Alexis has made uh, so much with this film. She's really, she was way ahead of everybody when she did it. She was right on track. And so hopefully we'll hear more about this film with her in the fall. We'll have another interview. But right now, we just thank you so much for joining us, Alexis. Well, thank you, Carol. It's such an honor to be here, and great to talk to you again. Yes, been a long time. Well, tell you, this book, Great Adaptations, is cleverly written, and it's your love of the movie industry and your love of teaching because they're popping off each page. So the book is in education in cinema as well as adaptation, and I highly recommend it. So I want to start with some of the contents in part one, titled Introducing Adaptation, and Part 2, Applying Screenplay Principles. Now, let's start with the chapter on creative issues, because I want you to share some of the creative issues faced by writers adapting to a screenplay. Uh, And let's start with this statement, to excel as an original filmmaker, the way in which ideas are translated to the screen must be invented anew. Well, actually, the credit for this idea goes to the grandmother of the Senegalese writer and film director, Jibril Diop Mabete, whose film Hyenas, uh, which satirizes consumerism in Africa, is actually an adaptation of a a play by Durenmat called The Visit, which originally was set in Switzerland. So we're really jumping from country to country in the creative process here. And Mabete's grandmother is one of many story grandmothers from West Africa uh, that command us to tell a story in a new and refreshing manner, uh, quote-unquote, for it to last forever. 
So I'm hoping that my book will show how to do that for stories turned into films and, and TV series. Right. I understand. Um, okay. Well, let's get into um, you talk about the writer as a character in the film. So I liked many of those films that you mentioned in your book. So let's start with that. Writer as a character. Well, throughout the film, uh, throughout the world, um, filmmakers have been obsessed with the joy and the suffering of writers as key characters in their films. And American productions that do that include the unforgettable movie Shakespeare in Love, in which a fictionalized Shakespeare comes up with the story of Romeo and Juliet, and the much more forgettable film Tune in Tomorrow, which is an adaptation of Maria Vargas Llosa's novel and Julia and the scriptwriter, which lacked the guts and the deep wit of the this Peruvian Nobel Prize winner who wrote the book. For wit, you've got um, the indie film Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, which is a biopic of Dorothy Parker, who was the wittiest writer of New York's Algonquin Roundtable. And, of course, you've got the old standby Misery, which is psychological suspense thriller adapted from Stephen King's novel uh, about a writer who's struggling to survive his capture by a crazed fan. And some of the uh, adaptations from other countries that focus on writers as their main characters include My Brilliant Career, um, a wonderful Australian film which tells the story of a young girl from the outback or the rural region of Australia who chooses to get her novel published over getting married in the outback and where she'd face a lifetime of drudgery. And then there's also a totally other side of the spectrum. You've got Total Eclipse. Uh, about the tempestuous relationship between two great 19th century French poets, Paul Verlaine and Arthur Rimbaud. And then you've got Baz Luhrmann's uh, very popular commercial Moulin Rouge, um, a U.S.-Australia co-production, which is about a British writer who's in love with a beautiful but consumptive courtesan who presides at the Moulin Rouge nightclub in Fin de Siècle Paris. And this film is a kaleidoscope of action and of appropriation, mashing together, kind of hip-hop style, mashing together characters and action and story elements of everything from operas like La Boheme and La Traviata to Bollywood musical numbers. Now, in contrast to all that, when we're talking about uh, films that have uh, uh, writers in them, we've got Susanna Amaral's film adaptation of... Um, the uh, genius uh, writer from Brazil, Clarice Lispector, her novel, A Hora da, da Estrela. And this is a low-budget documentary-style rendition of a young woman's story that underscores the protagonist's poverty with crystal clear vision. And in the novel, um, Lispector creates this narrator who admits, quote, I'm having a hellish Time with this story. May the gods never decree that I should write about a leper, for then I should become covered in leprosy. It's it's really hard for the for Clarice Lespector's male narrator to sit in the shoes of uh, of, of his simple uneducated female protagonist. Uh, but in the film, the camera replaces the narrator's doubts as to whether fiction is capable of telling the real truth of this woman's story. And the, the key, I, I believe, to a successful collaboration is for the writer whose work is adapted and the writer who adapts the work to serve as what uh, 
uh, critic Gloria Anzaldúa has called comadres or soul sisters, or they can be soul brothers. That's fine. Whether working at the computer or in front of or behind the camera, there's got to be that that connection. That connection of soul sisters. That's brilliant. All right, let's talk about Chapter 2, Career Issues and Writers and Producer Standpoints, and specifically start with the idea of homage instead of adaptation, remake, or, or plagiarism, because that seems to be a longstanding one amongst writers. Well, Carol, there's a quantum leap between paying an unknown writer at the time, named Charles Webb. I think he was living out of a trailer. He was being paid a, a paltry $20,000 for his first novel uh, which uh, by the, the producers of The Graduate. That was the film, The Graduate. And this enabled them, the producers, to make over $700 million. And there's a quantum leap between all of that and what Tarantino did in the making of Reservoir Dogs. Now, uh, some viewers see Tarantino's film as an uncredited adaptation of Ringo Lam's Long Fu Fang Hua, or City on Fire. But others see it as more of an homage to Hong Kong cinema than a straight ripoff. When it comes down to it, the bottom line is that ideas per se are not copyrightable, but the written treatments and the articles and the books and the screenplays and the films are. So we could probably spend all day and all night discussing The Lion King, which was based in part on Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Hamlet talks to his father's ghost. And then The Lion King's father in the movie says, similarly, Simba, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are, and so forgotten me. But there's also the question of Kimba, the white lion, which was created from a shonen manga series by Osamu Tozaka, uh, that was Japan's first color animated television series back in the mid-60s. Tezuka had ironically licensed Bambi back in 1951 and credited Disney. was very honorable in his business dealings. But Tezuka died in 1989, and his company and his heirs were unable to sue Disney, which had a legion of corporate lawyers. Disney did much better when it came to their adaptations of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, starting out with the ride at Disneyland. But they also credited uh, Tim Powers for his book called On Stranger Tides before Disney screenwriters developed his take on the Fountain of Youth as an element in the third film of the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Wow. (laughs) Everyone is taking ideas back and forth across the world. This is wonderful, isn't it? Right. Okay, Sometimes well, people honor, yeah. honor other cultures, and other times they think, oh, well, we can just rip it off. Nobody will know. But in an increasingly global world, it, people will know it's really important to do right. Exactly. They will know. So let's get into the legalities of adaptation. And I, you, in your book, you have something wonderful called the negotiator's checklist. So could you cover that for us? Uh, yeah, there are six basic questions that negotiators can discuss and check off when working on film adaptations. And the, the, the chapter goes through each of these in great detail. And I'm also very thankful to uh, the lawyer, Michael Donaldson, who also went over that chapter with me to make sure I got it right, because I'm a writer but not a lawyer myself. But here are the questions. Uh, the first of the six is, 
is the basic story under copyright. The second one is who owns the rights. The third one is have these rights been previously granted to a third party. The fourth one is if in public domain have other versions been previously made and released. Then number five is uh, has to do with monetary negotiations with the owner or the agent of the copyrighted version. And finally, the sixth one would have to do with uh, non-monetary negotiations that include things like uh, territory and script approval, uh, sequel rights, which you should never forget, uh, credits, and things like that. Attorneys can be very expensive. I mean, $500 per hour is not unusual in the U.S. today, and and therefore doing one's homework prior to uh, your consultation can be a worthwhile investment. And uh, the answers are discussed in some detail and great adaptations in the second chapter, which focuses on career issues. Yes, you did a marvelous job of that. So uh, I know because it is very complicated. You are treading on careful, careful ground here. So now let's talk about the adaptation of the film, The Help, because you covered that quite well in the book, and I really enjoyed it. I think our audience will too. Well, thank you, Carol. I, I uh, this film, The Help, uh, came out in 2011. And it's been widely criticized in the black community as a quote-unquote white savior film. Both the novel and the film feature as protagonist Eugenia, uh, her nickname is Skeeter, Phelan, a bright white ingenue, and played by Emma Stone. And uh, Skeeter helps black women to tell their stories of injustice in the Deep South in an era when publishers who would cons- would uh, consider publishing uh, black women writers other than Maya Angelou, um, those black women writers didn't make it through the publishing uh, hurdles of of the New York publishing world at that time. So uh, from a a social and literary perspective, it's ironic and also denigrating that the word help is relegated to the profession of maids. But one of the factors that makes both Catherine Stockett's novel and Tate Taylor's adaptation popular among female audiences is that the book and the film are among the only expressions in mass culture to date of the cooking and cleaning and childcare that are so intrinsic to most women's day-to-day activities, whether we're home care providers or professors like me who still have to clean when we come home. They the help pays attention to the details of diaper changing and cake baking, oven cleaning, and it even makes some of these plot points, turning Abilene Clark, who's played by Viola Davis, and Minnie Jackson, who's played by Octavia Spencer, into really unforgettable characters beyond their mundane routines. Many of us are hearing the maid's perspectives on race, power, and day-to-day survival skills for the first time. So it's really unfortunate, therefore, that the help, quote, distorts, ignores, and trivializes the experiences of black domestic workers, according to the Association of Black Women Historians. However, uh, where are the portraits of black women who were active in the struggle for civil rights 
in the 1960s, and why have the studios neglected to tell their stories? The film industry still has really far to go to make as many films about the Rosa Parks and Glen Eiffels of, Amer- of America as it has uh, done about its slaves and maids, butlers, and chauffeurs. As an adaptation, the help also plays with point of view detrimentally, even though this film was made almost a quarter century later. The novel opens with Abelene narrating her own story that forcefully underscores just what it meant for an intelligent black woman with limited educational and career opportunities to have to toil for hostile white women in a racist South, raising their white children during the pre-civil rights era. The emphasis from the very first sentence of the novel is already on someone white who will grow up to be more privileged than the person narrating her own story. A strong hint that the quote-unquote person with a problem, term we use in screenwriting a lot, person with a problem, who could turn the story will be deprived of that status. And the screenplay in contrast is one degree more distancing. We see Abelene, though not her interviewer, in a way that's awkwardly objectifying and very invasive. The woman says off camera, did you know as a girl growing up that one day you'd be a maid? Abelene, yes, ma'am, I did. And the woman off camera again says, and you knew that because? Abelene says, my mama was a maid. My grandmama was a house slave. And then the woman repeats Abelene's answer slowly as she writes. The woman says off camera, uh, house slave. That Abelene looks to the floor for a moment. Uh, this interview approach in the screenplay works to provide a logical structure to the movie version of The Help, as well as setting up a context before Abelene's own storytelling. But there's a lot more to the arts than just logic. And once we're introduced to the protagonist, Skeeter, who's interviewing these maids in order to obtain her own coming-of-age entrance into the world of professional writers, professional paid a lot, writers. The maids are turned into objects of supporting characters, and their lives are largely limited to the flavorful and southern style dialogue, which Skeeter appreciates but also exploits. The protagonist of the help gets to be this white woman, Skeeter, whose heroine's journey is to obtain a New York publishing deal off of the black women's stories, and the deal is what we would call her Jason's Golden Fleece. Uh, Nevertheless, it's a triumphant quest which manages to shed light on important historical events in the background, such as the murder of civil rights activist Medgar Evers in 1963. Abilene's initial response to the news of Evers' death in The Help is moving, but his dialogue is flat and on the nose. We live in, in hell. We trapped. Our kids is trapped. The line itself isn't so different from Stockett's dialogue. But the context is angrier and more specific in the novel. Instead of tears and the generalized uh, uh, off-camera, and here's the quote, uh, the mayor begins to give a statement over the radio. Of course, we don't hear the politics of the actual statement. Instead, we hear the historical facts of policemen everywhere blocking the road and other historical details in that novel. It's the reality of, quote, white people with guns, end quote, that breaks one made while the other stands drenched with sweat and fear. America has had to wait for over half a century since Medgar Evers' death, 
his biopic is finally due out soon, I, I believe. And in the meantime, Tate Taylor's The Help tones down the ending to this pivotal scene involving Evers with Abelina and Minnie hugging in false closure. Uh, quote, they laugh a little through the tears. I don't know whether to laugh or cry, but for many different reasons. Well done. That is so interesting. It is such an interesting take on the film because these are all important things to know and learn about adaptations. Now, um, let's go to part two of your book, Applying Screenplay Principles to Adaptation, and give us some information on how to write plot. Oh, sure. Uh, I'd be glad to. I mean, you know, in part two, I go through plot and setting, character, structure, all kinds of things. But with plot, it's interesting to see how uh, blockbuster hits like Die Hard, which is a toned-down adaptation of Roderick Thorpe's uh, right-wing novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, uh, pull their plot points um, from the original source material or finesse the storyline to make it work. And... um, that I, I think that's all. That's that's I I, I, I think uh, that's all I have to say at the moment about that. There's a okay. lot more. Yeah, there's a lot more in my book. Sorry. Yeah, there's a lot more in the book. It really covers it well. So now, in your chapter on settings, that you mentioned that Chicago was considered for the setting of Moonlight, and to me, that would have changed the entire film. So, how important is it to stay with the original setting? Well, Moonlight was shot in Liberty City, Florida, which is a Miami suburb uh, where both uh, the director, Barry Jenkins, and the original source materials writer, uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, grew up. But before Barry Jenkins' Oscar-winning movie was made, there was talk about sending uh, the movie that was based on McCraney's play, uh, the title of which is In the Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, in Chicago. And McCraney responded to those producers saying, no, you're missing the whole point. There's something really important to this being in Miami, he said. And similarly, it's it's really hard to imagine train spotting taking place somewhere other than Edinburgh or the Milk of Sorrow at any place other than Peru or Wuthering Heights outside of England, although actually Luis Buñuel's Wuthering Heights took place in Mexico and he renamed it Abismos de Pasión. Uh, being faithful to a unique setting can add authenticity and it can add uniqueness to a story that's based on real life. And here's an example. Uh, Angela Workman, the screenwriter of The Zookeeper's Wife, explained, um, quote, unlike other Holocaust movies, this one's set in a zoo. Workman's script was based on a nonfiction, non-academic book by Diane Ackerman, and it was about a woman who saved the lives of hundreds of Jews during World War II in Warsaw, Poland, by hiding them in a zoo, which the Nazis had mostly destroyed. Uh, Metaphorically, as Workman has explained, the, the film contrasts the heroine's attempt to protect the natural world to the Nazis' attempt to control and exterminate its inhabitants. In setting also plays a role in whether or not Antonina and her husband in this film, The Zookeeper's Wife, can help more Jews escape from the Warsaw Ghetto, and this adds suspense. Setting gives the film intensity. The close confines of the basement of the villa in the zoo where Antonina hides the Jews while trying to carry on a quote-unquote normal life upstairs 
uh, provides a kind of downstairs, upstairs twist to setting, although it's much darker than Downton Abbey's. Uh, but ma- many, many times, the creativity of changing a setting is what makes a film such a winner. And, and I have a lot of examples of that in the book, but one of the best examples, I think, of a film that I've seen like <laughs> at least 20 times, I just love this film, um, is uh, Midak Ali. It, it was, the, the novel was written by a Nobel laureate, um, Najib Mahfouz, and it takes place in a rundown alleyway in poverty-stricken Cairo, Egypt. And what the director, Jorge Fons, did is he reset the story of of his film, Midag Ali, or El Callejón de los Milagros. He ex- explored the parallel lives of Mexican characters in a rundown alleyway in Mexico City. And there's no reference to Egypt in the film whatsoever. It's totally Mexican. Film won 11 Ariel Awards in Mexico. That's the equivalent of our Oscars here in the U.S. And and it won dozens of other international awards and nominations. And also stars Salma Hayek. I mean, it's just a great example of a story without borders. It's a story that resonates with poverty issues that are faced in both Egypt and Mexico. But it's also universal. Wonderful. So we've looked at both sides of moving and not moving the location. So it it is something to really think about carefully. Well, let's go to part two, where you cover characters and character relationships and tell us about Homeland and In Treatment, which you say were adopted, uh, adapted in the United States from Israeli television shows. I never knew that. That's exciting. Well, I found this out from um, a friend in the Writers Guild, Ligia Villalobos. Uh, she's the writer-producer of the independent feature called La Misma Luna, um, or Under the Same Moon, which is a Mexican-U.S. co-production, which was shot for $1.9 million and went on to make over $23 million worldwide and is showing again in Los Angeles, I think, this month. Villalobos is also uh, well-known for showrunning skills. And she just gave this outstanding workshop a couple of weeks ago called Running the Room at the, at the Writers Guild. And uh, this is what Lobos has to say about Showtime's uh, Homeland and uh, HBO's In Treatment, which were adopted in, in the U.S. from Israeli television shows. Uh, so this is a quote from Ligia Lobos, who says, What I like about the Israeli films and TV shows I've watched is that they tend to focus on character and story. So many American shows nowadays focus on procedural or a high concept. At the core, I'm still a character-driven and story-driven writer. So I enjoy getting in deep into the characters and the story. But much of television here in the States is about characters serving the plot. I would say most procedural shows are that way, like cop, medical, legal shows, and big concept TV. So I think maybe because other countries may not have that kind of budget that we have here in the States, they still focus on story and character, not explosions or big set pieces. I think this quote uh, from Legia Villalobos is, is particularly important for people who are getting started with uh, webisodes and then cable and then primetime TV, uh, where, where the jobs are, um, because we, you, know, you do need to start with a low budget most of the time, and uh, characters don't cost as much as, as some of the spectacular special effects, bombings with hundreds of extras crowding around, etc. Uh, 
she, she's really brilliant at developing characters and character relationships that resonate universally with audiences in different countries, including the U.S. Right. I love focus on story and character. That's what makes a film so important to me, the characters. And, and I choose. I mean, I can tell you in five to ten minutes if I want to follow that character or not. And, uh, and if I don't, I just go find something else to watch. I like to get involved with the characters. And I think that, that I'm like a lot of other uh, viewers. We love that. So now let's go to your section on structure and tell us how the screenwriter, Gillian Flynn, uh, provided a gender twist in the film Gone Girl. Well, a lot of my chapter on structure uh, deals with a comparison of the hero's journey with various heroines' journeys, because heroes' journeys, because there's a feeling among many feminists in Hollywood today uh, that the hero's journey is a male-biased way of telling stories that's disguised as gender-free. But what novelist uh, screenwriter uh, Gillian Flynn provides so brilliantly is a double spiral of intertwining character relations, which is a far cry from the classic male story template that Eric Lee has called a, a quote-unquote, a spermatic journey. Uh, Flynn provides a gender twist to the double spiral, laced with the cynicism that a husband and wife feel on their fifth anniversary in Gone Girl. Both Flynn's novel and her film adaptation provide witty examples of the, quote, flat, cold, inner, remove, that critic Vivian Gornick's book, The End of the Novel of Love, explored in, quote, remarkable novels where at the exact moment the woman should melt, her heart unexpectedly hardens. Flynn dimensionalizes this tack by constructing a he-said, she-said alternating structure between Nick the hero and Amy the heroine's points of view. And Flynn mines and explodes and turns upside down and backwards the fates of Americanhood. As, as Gretchen Carlson has stated, uh, the Gretchen Carlson has stated, uh, one of our greatest feats is that we won't be believed. He said, she said, is still a convenient phrase that equates victims with harassers. It trivializes workplace harassment and has become synonymous with, quote, don't take that risk. They won't believe you anyway, end quote. Right. (laughs) Right on. By bringing the issue of victimhood into the home instead of the workplace, Flint's thriller Gone Girl is made that much scarier. Or does the double perspective simply make it lighthearted and entertaining? Uh, Nick and Amy's story is so self-referential that the structure is even labeled as such at the end of the novel where the story is off except to the, I mean, sorry, where the love is off uh, except to the media circus that's uh, crowding around outside their blood-stained home eager for their reconciliation and a happy ending. But the book deal is on at the end of the story, and Amy can finally gloat, quote, I have a book deal. I'm officially in control of our story. It feels wonderfully symbolic. Isn't that what every marriage is anyway? Just a lengthy game of he said, she said. Well, she is saying, and the world will listen, and Nick will have to smile and agree, end quote. Wow. Nick maintains his own version of the story throughout the 400 
or more pages of the novel, but by the end, uh, his wife manages, has managed to blackmail him into deleting his version from his laptop, leaving her the sole winner. By the time the public has turned against Nick, his, he said, has evolved from typical American reticence to some soul-searching on his part. And here's a quote from Nick. I tried all my life to be a decent guy, a man who loved and respected women, a guy without hang-ups. And here I was, thinking nasty thoughts about my twin, about my mother-in-law, about my mistress. I was imagining bashing in my wife's skull. (laughs) (laughs) End quote. Uh, The film can't keep as many of these interior monologue observations. But since Nick and Amy are both writers, they have a perfect excuse for their voiceovers. When Amy fakes her death, for example, in order to frame her husband, she writes and says, I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. (laughs) What we see in the film is an underwater shot of a woman's corpse in the river. Because, don't forget, you know, films are images, not just sounds. But her voiceover continues, uh, quote, And when they find my body, they'll know. Nick Dunn dumped his beloved like garbage, and she floated down past all the other abused, unwanted, inconvenient women. What a quote. For (laughs) cinephiles, the woman's uh, decaying corpse with her seaweed-like hair is more than a riff on the woman as victim cliché. It also evokes the title sequence of the Australian film adaptation of uh, Wide Sargasso Sea, um, which was a Caribbean novelist, Jean Reese's uh, riff on Charlotte Bronte's English classic, Jane Eyre. It gets very complex, the relationship of of, of writers all across the globe. And the idea of one novelist riffing on another's work is also apparent in a book by Kamel Daoud, which retells uh, the French classic The Stranger, L'Etranger, by Albert Camus, from the perspective of the Arab murder victim's Algerian brother, um, and uh, Dawood's um, Marisol counter-investigation has been adapted into a play and is also being developed into a film. And there's a lot more in structure in uh, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl, as well as other structural changes that uh, film and television writers can consider when adapting myths or legends or plays or novels, uh, manga, etc., to the uh, to the screen in, in my book, but hopefully this gives you a taste of some of the thinking that goes on in writing an adaptation. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. You make it very clear to us. Thank you. So now let's go to part three, and you cover a survival guide to adaptation. So tell us how the beloved filmmaker Akira Kurosawa starts the process for his adaptations. Uh, let's see. Uh, Well, Kurosawa was famous for many adaptations. Uh, And, uh, for example, I mean, he loved loved Western literature. He did a a mammoth adaptation uh, based on The Idiot by Dostoevsky. Uh, He incorporated King Lear by Shakespeare, Macbeth by Shakespeare. Uh, He did his own version uh, set in Japan, 
of The Lower Depths, which is a play by the Russian playwright Gorky. Um, and he even turned to not such great literature um, with the pulp novel The King's Ransom by Ed McBain, which is like a third-rate novel, but he made it into a first-class film by in, injecting his own way of thinking about about uh, corporate injustice and, and uh, resetting it into a Japan that he knows very well. Um, he was in, in his autobiography, which he cleverly named something like an autobiography. Uh, Kurosawa recalled it, I'm, I'm quoting here, um, as, I, as I cast about for what to film. Um, I suddenly remembered a script based on a short story in a grove by Ryonosuke Akutagawa, written by Hashimoto Shinobu. It was a very well-written piece, but not long enough to make into a feature film. And later, the memory of it jumped out of one of those creases in my brain and told me <laughs> to give it a chance. At the same time, I recalled that In a Grove is made up of three stories, and I realized if I added one more, the whole would be just the right length for a feature film. And then I remembered the Akutagawa story, Rashomon. And like In a Grove, it was set in the Heian period uh, in ancient Japan, and the film Rashomon took shape in my mind. Kurosawa felt that in order to write scripts, I mean, he was a great teacher with this, with this concept, but he, he said that you must first study the great novels and dramas of the world. You must consider why they are great. And, and I've tried to do just that uh, while writing my book, Great Adaptation, Screenwriting, and Global Storytelling. I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be helpful to others. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And, and tell us right now, where can we buy this book? Oh, Great Adaptation, Screenwriting, and, and Global Storytelling is it's published in both New York and London by Routledge, um, which is part of Taylor and Francis. It's actually called Focal Press, um, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E is Routledge, and they have their own website. Um, so you can get the book through Outlet, or you can just get it through Amazon. And for that matter, I think you also can get it uh, as an e-book. And that's, uh, that's another possibility. Oh, that would be great. It's just, well, I don't know. I think that it's like a, a book you want on the shelf all the time so you can grab it and look things up. Because to memorize all that's going to be impossible, but to have it as a reference book would be marvelous. Um, so you, you were talking about Kurosawa saying that to, really what you need to do is read some uh, good novels and uh, so do you have any novels that you would tell us that are good that we might read to better our skills? Uh, yes. Uh, before I do that, though, just to be fair uh, to Kurosawa and where he's coming from, he did base a tremendous amount of his work on Western literature. He loved Western literature, and I think that was part of the key to how he became such a, a, a great world-renowned, internationally recognized uh, filmmaker for all times because he had that understanding and appreciation of crossing bridges between the East and the West. Um, Kurosawa's own favorite filmmaker was another filmmaker called named uh, Kenji Mizuguchi, which he actually thought was the best filmmaker in Japan, not himself. <laughs> and Mizuguchi, in turn, made these great Japanese films, really for the Japanese, but they are so incredibly, uh, just such incredible works of art, works of genius that they 
also <laughs> transcend boundaries that are beloved by critics all over the world, films like Ugetsu. And Ugetsu, actually, when it comes down to it, it's, it's an all-Japanese film set in Japan dealing with Japanese during an ancient war. I mean, it, but at the, it deals with Japanese uh, culture and has elements of no theater in it, etc. But when it comes down to it, the Japanese loved Chinese, ancient Chinese literature. <laughs> so it's actually based on on um, uh, uh, horror, Japanese horror stories that have their roots in Chinese culture. So, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of, like, if you turn on PBS and you see uh, something called Civilizations, and they talk about, you know, the Western powers going in and and uh, absorbing the culture of, of uh, different uh, continents and different different um, countries, whether it's Japan or different uh, cultures in Africa, etc. I mean, that's, that has a lot to do with exploitation. Um, but uh, the, the cultures in different countries also have their ways of uh, connecting with and appropriating cultures um, um, with, uh, beyond their, their, their borders that are not necessarily Western civilization. Um, so, long story short, to get back to Kurosawa, um, when he made the film Ron, um, yes, he was basing um, Ron on Shakespeare, but he also was basing it on a historical legend of a feudal lord who had three sons, Mori uh, Mono, 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 Motobari. Um, so it's important to uh, uh, recognize um, the, that, that uh, writers... Um, take what they know. They take their their own personal lives. They take their community. They take their country's culture as well as uh, uh, reverberating with cultures around the world. Um, and 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 I think that's what makes uh, screenwriting uh, adaptation so exciting. Actually, the ability to do that. But so uh, uh, sorry for the digression. But to get back to your uh, question about novels, I think it's really wonderful when people can uh, in this country can um, recognize that there's some amazing writing coming from uh, other countries um, and other cultures. Um, and um, I still don't see enough of that in the New York Review of Books. In fact, I usually still see just the one token woman writer on the cover and all the others <laughs> white male writers. And occasionally they'll give a concession to diversity. But I, um, in, in writing this book, I began to uh, read some of the work of Clarice Lispector, who I've always known has been a a key name in, in feminist circles uh, for literature, but I, I, I never actually had read her uh, before I got a research fellowship from my university to take this a step further. And, um, I mean, her work just bowled me over. So that's a Brazilian novelist. Um, then there's the Nobel Prize winner from Peru, Maria Vargas Llosa, and several of his films have been adapted, but quite honestly, I don't think the adaptations live up to his work, so I recommend people reading the actual work of the Nobel Prize winner. And then in this country, um, I think what happens is that people read the first part of Nabokov's Lolita because it's so sexy, and then they don't bother to read the whole second part, which uh, largely involves a, a, a road trip that Stanley Kubrick um, did, didn't really uh, do justice to because he was mostly filming in, in English studios and, and, and just didn't really 
uh, he didn't have the vision, the liberty, or even the, the sensibility to do right by Nabokov. Um, so I, I highly recommend that people read the very still controversial uh, novel Lolita, uh, rather than relying on on Kubrick's um, adaptation or or, or the other adaptations of the of the film of the book. Okay. Okay, read the book, Lolita. And the woman's name was Clarissa? And could you spell her last Clarissa, name? Clarissa, Lispector, it's C-L-A-R-I-C-E. Lispector is L-I-S-P-E-C-T-O-R. And her, her work is available in English, in translation. Okay, wonderful. Oh, great. Oh, thank you so much. This has been marvelous to learn all of this about great adaptations. And I want everybody to know that we'll have Alexis back with us in July because we want to hear her talk to us about her novel called Sex and the Cyborg Goddess. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then back in in, uh, the autumn, close uh, September, October, when we have uh, the ability to get Alexis back, we'll go into Women Behind the Camera and her fabulous film and where it is now. So we re- we sincerely thank you, Claire, and I appreciate all the knowledge and the information that you've shared with us today, Alexis. Well, it's yes. it's been great having this opportunity, and I thank you very, very much for uh, having done that. Great. All right. Thank you very much, Claire and Alexis. Best of luck to all of you, and we'll see you or talk to you in July. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Mom deserves more. So this Mother's Day, give mom more of what she loves with a Massage Envy gift card. More choices, more flexibility, more massage and total body stretch. Purchase $125 in gift cards for Mother's Day and mom gets a 60-minute facial session for free. Massage Envy gift cards, making the best of everybody. 
See franchise locations for details. Offer ends May 13, 2018. Promotional voucher valid until August 11, 2018. Mom deserves more. So this Mother's Day, give mom more of what she loves with a Massage Envy gift card. More choices, more flexibility, more massage and total body stretch. Purchase $125 in gift cards for Mother's Day and mom gets a 60-minute facial session for free. Massage Envy gift cards, making the best of everybody. See franchise locations for details. Offer ends May 13, 2018. Promotional voucher valid until August 11, 2018.